Well, after this morning, there will be only one more sermon in the summer sermon series that we've been in, in the book of Psalms. Another reminder that summer is coming to a close, and I invite all of you to grieve with me. I am bummed about that. I, I'm seriously bummed. I, I don't want our kids to go back to school yet. I want to enjoy more of, of the heat and the fun of summer. But, but there are good things about the seasons changing. Reminders of God's goodness, our reliance on him to get us through another cold Wisconsin winter. He is faithful. Uh, co- coinciding with the official start of our community groups, on September 9th, we will begin a sermon series on the church. And in this series of sermons, we'll be aiming at accomplishing two goals. First, we, we want to begin uh, addressing a major part of our vision more and more. And, and it has to deal with this mission that we've, we've solidified and we've, we've put forward and we've embraced as a church to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and treasuring Christ above all. And you've heard a lot about community groups. And, and as we make our way in this church series, even though it's not necessarily where I would probably start because of community groups starting on September 9th, uh, that's what we'll start with. We'll start with how do community groups fit into uh, us implementing the mission statement within the life of the church, and they play a, a key role in that. Second, with this series on the church, we want to increase our, over, our overall understanding of important matters relating to the church, like baptism and the Lord's Supper, membership, church leadership, and church discipline. Believe it or not, these two aims are very much related. What we believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper and what we believe about membership and church leadership and church discipline will very much shape how we view the, the mission of the church and how we accomplish that together. So in this series on the church, that's what, what we'll be aiming at, community and how we have it in the church, and then these, these other matters that relate to church life. Well, now that you know where we're going, I, I want to turn our attention back to where we will be today, to Psalm 124. Uh, I invite you to turn to it now if you haven't already. I did forget to look it up in the Pew Bible, but uh, I think you can find it. Uh, it's Psalm 124. You've heard it read. You've heard it sung, and now you'll hear it read again. You might hear some coughs in the midst of it, and I apologize for that. Nothing I can do about it, fighting through a cold, but, but I, pray, I, I trust that the Lord will, will bring us through my coughs. Now, as you turn to Psalm 124, uh, I think it's helpful to know that this is part of a selection of psalms known as the Songs of Ascents. It's a group of psalms that include Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, which were probably sung by the people of God as they made their way to Jerusalem. Just as we have certain traditional songs that we tend to sing most often during Christmas, like think of Silent Night or O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Israelites would probably have sung this collection of psalms to prepare their hearts to worship God as they made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for certain celebrations and festivals. David's purpose in this song of ascent is to provide God's people with assurance. He wants to remind them as you have just been reminded in that song that you you heard, of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, of his mercy. And he, he wants to foster, he wants to stir up God's people's confidence in God. They're making their way to, to worship God and he wants their minds and ultimately it's God who wants these things and he's using his servant David to write down his word by the power of his spirit. He wants, he wants his people to have confidence in him. And so that's where this psalm is coming from. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, Psalm 124. Hear it again. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. 
Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is God's word. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for his help. God, as we always should, we begin by recognizing that you are awesome. In the most glorious sense of the word, you are awesome. You are holy. You are righteous in every, everything you do. You are perfect. You are glorious. You are good. And we have come to this place to recognize who you are, first of all, before we, we think about us and, and, and how how to apply the text, we, we first of all want to recognize that you are awesome and glorious and good, and we have come to worship an awesome, glorious, good, merciful God. We want to adore you this morning together as a local church. We want to recognize that you are preeminent, that you are the creator, that you are the only savior of sinners. And Father, we confess that we continue to struggle with sin we can be so prideful, we can be so selfish, we can be so self-focused, we can, we can be arrogant and angry and, and all these things that, that are so not like you. And, and when we ponder it in light of your word and, and what it means to be a Christian and the great work that you've called us to do, we hate that we continue to struggle with sin and yet it is life in this fallen world as we pursue holiness and we trust in you to sanctify us and we wait for our glorification. This is the reality and so we confess it. We have struggled this week with sin. We have failed. We have sinned against one another, against you. And we praise you for the gospel because though we are great sinners, Christ is a greater savior and we're resting in him together this morning. And so we come to you struggling with sin, uh, others maybe not struggling with sin as they should be, and yet reminding ourselves of the great news of the gospel that you made a way, that Christ is king, that he laid down his life so great sinners like us would be saved and he would be displayed before all the world as a great savior. God, we give you thanks for the way that you care for us, your provision. We give you thanks for the, the hardships that you are using in our lives to, to help us to see that truly Christ is our greatest treasure. And we want to treasure him above all. And you're refining and shaping us through the blessings and the struggles and the hardships. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are suffering, who are who are dealing with, with difficult things, whether it be cancer or a rebellious child or uh, struggles with, with finances. We, we pray for them that they would be reminded that you are enough for them and that you have not abandoned them, that you love them and you are with them today and in all their, their days. Lord, we again lift up the persecuted church throughout the world, those who are not ashamed of the gospel, even when it hurts, who are being thrown in prison, who are experiencing great hardship and suffering, even to the point of death. May they trust in you. May they find you as worthy of the sacrifices that they are making because you are. And may you use their lives and even their deaths for your glory to display the, the preciousness of Christ to the world, even to those who are persecuting them. And Lord, now again, I pray that you would overcome the deficiencies in my preaching 
and that you would provide what is needed. Conviction of sin where it is lacking, faith where it is weak, strength where, where there needs to be more strength and confidence in you, that you would deal with doubt and despair. You would give your people what you need through the preaching of your word. We trust these things will be done because you are awesome and glorious, and you are good, and you are for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday I had the, the opportunity, the joy, the blessing of going to the races at Road America with my three oldest boys and a dear brother in Christ who, who's a big racing fan. And it, it was our, our boys' first real race car experience. And, and I've only been to a handful, maybe not even a handful, two or three races in my entire life. And so this dear friend served as something like our guide. We, we experienced the VIP treatment. He brought us to the best places to watch the race around the track. And, and he answered all of our questions along the way because we didn't know what Sometimes we were looking at it. We didn't know how to follow. We didn't know what certain things meant. And so we were asking all these questions, and my boys like to ask questions. And so, so this, this brother was, was a great blessing, and, and uh, we enjoyed the day. We really did have a great time watching and learning about a sport that we were very unfamiliar with, and I'm still very unfamiliar with. I, I don't know uh, that I would yet call myself a racing fan, but I had a great time there yesterday. And on the way home, I asked my friend as we drove back home uh, what he thought was the main difference maker in racing if there was an X factor between the ones who would win the race and the ones who lost the race? Was it the driver? Was it the pit crew or the tires? Was it the engine? Well, then he politely informed this racing novice that there are just so many variables to choose from. So many things that can make the difference between who wins and who loses a race. Certainly the equipment matters. It makes a difference, but so does the driver and the pit crew. It's not just one thing that determines who gets the checkered flag and who ends up not finishing the race. Sometimes, like in racing, there will be many difference makers in something, in your career, in your life, in, in various things that you experience. There can be many difference makers, many X factors. But when it comes to what matters the most, to life or death, salvation or condemnation, heaven or hell, it's, it's really not complicated. There is only one true and ultimate difference maker. There is only one X factor. The difference maker is, of course, God. If the Lord is on your side, victory is guaranteed. Again, I'm not talking about winning a race here. I'm, I'm not talking about a football game or getting a promotion at work. I'm talking about life and death, salvation and condemnation, heaven and hell. When the Lord is on your side, it doesn't matter who is against you or what obstacle is before you, Christian, you will overcome it. You will be on the winning side. And I want to give you some examples of this. There's the example of Abraham and Sarah. They faced what seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle in life. Abraham and Sarah were old, very old. I don't mean to offend anybody who considers themselves old. They were very old. They had been unable to conceive a child their whole life together. But the scriptures tell us that the Lord opened Sarah's womb and Isaac was conceived. So old age and infertility were overcome because the Lord was on their side. When the Lord makes a promise, it will be fulfilled. There's the example of David when he faced the giant Philistine Goliath. It seemed like the fight was over before it started. You know the story. Everyone thought that the young shepherd boy... David would be crushed by Goliath, the behemoth seasoned warrior. I mean, it was in, in everybody's minds over before it started. Here's Goliath taunting the Israelite army. 
and they send out this little shepherd boy who shouldn't have even been on the front lines of battle. But that's not what happened. David wasn't destroyed. The difference maker wasn't David's sling or the stones that he had picked out. The difference maker was the Lord. Because the Lord was on David's side, Goliath is the one who had no chance in that battle. And so he fell like a mighty tree that was chopped down by a toothpick. Goliath had no chance that day because the Lord was on David's side. There are many examples in church history as well. There are the martyrs, men and women who Men and women of God like Stephen and Polycarp and Perpetua, uh, William Tyndale and, and countless others who were put to death by those who opposed the gospel only to become bright gospel torches that lit the way for so many to see the glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. People saw them going to the stake, being burned to death, being hacked into pieces and, and proclaiming the goodness and the mercy and the power of the gospel to save sinners. At the time, it seemed like the lost, that they had lost because they died, but they didn't really lose. Not according to Jesus, who said in Mark 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. How does that work? How, do, how, does, how does it happen? Well, it only works because the Lord was on the martyr's side. Otherwise, when the martyr dies, well, it would be the end of their story. They would lose. They would just stop existing. But they, they don't lose. The scriptures tell us they gain because the Lord is on their side. When they die, they enter into eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the Lord uses their deaths to open the eyes of the blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and their need to repent and trust in Christ to save them from their sin. People say, I don't have that. I'm not ready to die. Polycarp went to the, went to the stake and was burned alive. How can, how can he do that? Tyndale screaming out, open the eyes of the king, and a great revival happening throughout the, 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 the uh, UK, Great Britain. He died, and then there was a revival. How does that happen? How does it work? Because the Lord is on the side of his people. Even when it seems like we lose, we win. There are other examples in church history as well of people who weren't martyred but faced intense opposition because of their commitment to Christ and his church. Of course, there are the reformers that we often mention like Luther and Calvin and John Knox. But, but if we go even further back to the fourth century, I know if you're not a church history person, you might be, all right, here we are. He's getting into history. You need to know these things. It's wonderful encouragement. So we're going to go all the way back to the fourth century where we find another great example, and, and that is a, a man named Athanasius who was the bishop of Alexandria. The epitaph on his gravestone read, Athanasius contra mundum. That's Latin for Athanasius against the world. Because during his lifetime, the church faced the threat of Arianism. Now, it's not this, this what you might think of, of what that means. What it was is, it was a heresy named after a man, a false teacher named Arius, who taught that the Son of God was a godlike creature, but not truly and fully divine. Arius taught that Christ was worthy of honor, even praise, because he was God's first creation through whom all else was created, but that the Son was still, in the end, just a creature, not truly God. That there was a time when the Son was not was one of his, his main points in his teaching. Over time, the emperor and many bishops and church leaders grew sympathetic to his teachings, and, and they even began to embrace his, his view 
Athanasius refused to admit Arian, uh, Arius and his followers to the church. Opposing the heresy, he, he taught which, which led to, to Athanasius being banished for a time from the church and his life being threatened. He had to run. But Athanasius refused to give in to the Arian heresy. And despite being opposed by so many powerful people, God used Athanasius to, to proclaim the orthodox biblical position of the Son's eternal and divine nature. One man, two natures. It's hard to understand, but Athanasius says that's what the Bible teaches. And he stood. He was willing to die for it. And though it seemed as though he was contra mundum, God was on his side because he was proclaiming the truth, and Christ's divinity was affirmed. Christian, even if it seems as though the entire world is against you, even if it feels like you are contra mundum, if the Lord is on your side, you are in the majority. This is the message of Psalm 124. It is a worship song exhorting the people of God to remember what matters most. Is, it's not that we are the physically strongest. It's not that, that we have the most money in the bank or even that we have the most political power in our country. What matters the most is that the Lord is on our side. In Psalm 124, how does David set out to encourage us to have confidence in God? Well, he uses an interesting tool. He uses the hypothetical, or what I'll refer to as the what-if tool. Like a tool, what-if can be used for good or for bad. If you use a circular saw to cut off your toenails, it's going to be bad. That's, that's, that's the wrong way to use that tool. However, however, if you use that same circular saw to cut a board as you're trying to build something or fix something, it's going to go really well for you. I would recommend it, you use it to cut boards and not your toenails. When what if is used in the wrong way, so like that, when what if is used in the wrong way, it can lead a person into dark places. Many of us know people who use the what if in this wrong way. People who seem to always be asking themselves. They, they seem to be living in the what ifs. What if I would have done better in school? What if I would have gone to college? What if I would have chosen a different career? What if I would have taken a different job? What if I would have married someone else? What if I would have had children? What if I wouldn't have had children? What if I would have made better investments? What if I would have saved for retirement? Well, these types of what-ifs will, in the end, if they linger too long and you keep on coming back to them, they will steal your joy, they will tempt you to sin, and they will lead you into despair. But there is a way to use the what-if for good, and, and we see David doing this in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 124. He asks, and then he answers the question of what would have happened if the Lord was not on our side. Scholars believe that the what-if scenario that David has most in mind is recorded in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 5, 17 through 25. At that time, David was being pursued by the Philistines. They had recently defeated Saul and, and, and Israel's army. And Saul, if you know, was, as, as you, you likely know, was the, the, the king before David. And not only had they defeated Saul and his army, they had killed Saul and Jonathan, who was David's closest and most trusted friend and Saul's son. The Philistines had already done great harm to God's people, and they were a serious threat to their safety. And then they heard that David had been anointed the next king. So they, they're in this season of, hey, we're, we're beating them back. We're destroying them. We've killed Saul. We've killed Jonathan, the, who, who they, they, they thought would be the next heir. And now they've got a new king. Well, let's go get him. Let's take him out. Let's destroy these people once and for good. 
And so the Philistines set out to find, capture, and destroy David. In search of David, they spread out in the valley of Rephim to hunt him down like he was an animal. Right? So you, you get the imagery in the psalm. What would have happened if the Lord was not on David's side? If God had not been their defender and deliverer, how would the story have ended? What would have happened if the Lord had left them to fight their own battle in that valley? Well, the result would have been very different. And so David invites God's people to consider the difference, the hypothetical situation that, that would have happened if the Lord was not on their side. The, the difference that the Lord makes in one's life. David says in verse 3 that if the Lord was not on our side, they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. The Philistines hated Israel with a burning passion. There was a fire in their belly, in their heart, and that fire was, let's destroy these people. And the Philistines were powerful. So David uses the imagery of a predator and its prey to describe what would have happened if God had left them to themselves. They would have been consumed whole. If God had not protected them, they would have been, and, and here's, a, here's an image that, that I, I resonate with because I've seen it, they would have been like a frog swimming through the open water with a large mouth bass coming behind and just swallowing them whole. Just done, consumed, gone, off the face of the earth. David continues his depiction of, of what would have happened by saying that if the Lord was not on their side, then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. That's what the Philistines would have done. They would have swept them away like a flood. Recently, there was a, a flood in Madison, and, and we've experienced floods in our, in our country's history. You think of Katrina and the damage that it has done. Those images are horrific. And tsunamis just taking out whole groups, massive thousands of people in one act. And that's the image David puts before the people of God. If the Lord was not on our side, that, that's what it would have been like. We would have been facing a tsunami. No chance the levees would have broken. We would have been done. Every single one of us would have been washed away. We would have drowned. And that's what it would have happened if the Lord was not on David and Israel's side. And, and Christian, that's what would have happened to you and I if the Lord wasn't on our side. We would have been swallowed up alive by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We already struggle with, with these three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, we would have been swallowed up alive by them. No way. There's no way we overcome these opponents on our own. Before God saved us, we were rebels, willing sinners, born in sin who choose to sin. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were followers of this world under the guidance and direction of Satan, we were people who lived for the passions of our flesh. We were people that carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You know what that picture is? We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have been trying to run from the tsunami. We would have been running into the tsunami. That's what we were doing, brothers and sisters in Christ. We were, come on, bring on the flood. I can take it. Actually, I like it. I'm in. Let's cause, let's cause a ruckus here in this world. That's what we were doing before we were in Christ. And what a hopeless condition that was. We had absolutely no chance. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. We would have drowned in the raging waters of the world, our sin and the works of the devil. If the Lord was not on our side, we would have had no chance. We would have been done. 
Christian, I want you to consider this morning where you would be, how your life would have gone, where you would be headed if the Lord was not on your side. Seriously, take, take a few seconds to consider. I know where I would be. Not here. No way. Worshiping the Lord, that's a joke in my former life. As for weak people, I would probably be getting ready to get drunk today and chasing after the things of the world, pursuing money and the, the things that the world has to offer. I know some of you were, were better sinners than I was, and so you didn't have that experience, but the same thing was going on in your heart. You were after whatever you thought would make you the, the most content and satisfy your soul, and they were ultimately things of this world, whether it was family or a good job or moralism, whatever it was but it would have all led us to the very same place, to hell. We had no chance. Sister, brother, consider where you would be if the Lord was not on your side. You would not be here. You would not be headed to heaven. You would be headed to hell. And yet that's not what happened, is it? It's not what happened in 2 Samuel 5, and it's not what happens to every sinner who turns from their sin and by faith runs for cover in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this in David's movement from the hypothetical to the reality in the remainder of the psalm. In verses 6 and 7, David says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. They're, hey, this is what would have happened, but praise be to God, that's not what happened. He didn't give us up to them. He was with us. He stood by us. He protected us. He blessed us. He gave us the victory. And so we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. You see the tone, the mood, the, the feel of the, the rest of the, the, the psalm changes here. The Lord had arrived. David returns to the metaphor of a predator in his prey, of, of a bird that has been caught in a snare and it's struggling to escape, but it cannot free itself. That's a sad predicament. Even if you're a hunter, uh, to, to see an animal just sitting there trying to get away and, and you know it can't get away. That, that's a sad picture to consider. And that, that's, that's what they were like, the, the Israelites. That's what we are like. We could not get away. And as the doomed bird desperately struggles to escape and cannot free itself, all of a sudden the snare is broken. And they're saved from destruction and they fly away. That is what God does for his people. That's a great gospel image right there to have in your mind. I was like a bird caught up in a snare and I was waiting for my destruction for my end. And yet the Lord broke the snare. He freed me from the destruction that I was, I was awaiting, and I flew away. That's, that's, that's what happens for the Christian. We are like that helpless bird caught in the, the snare, headed towards destruction, but, but blessed be the Lord because he broke the snare. He freed us from sin. We have escaped. God gives his people the victory. Blessed be the Lord. He will not let us be torn apart. We will not, he will not leave us or forsake us to our enemies. Friends, here we're reminded of, of another important truth. God does take sides. He does. You know, in this world of kind of ecumenical, watered-down Christianity, we kind of, we, we, some Christians have embraced, no, God doesn't take, he does. Have you read the Bible? He takes sides. Tell David he doesn't take sides. No, he clearly took a side. Read the rest of the scripture, the New Testament, he takes sides. And so it's so popular to hear today that what people are most concerned about is being on the right side of history. 
You know what? I want to be on the right side of history. That's what people will say. Christians kind of struggling with our culture and, and the changes and, and where, where it seems just everybody, and we looked at this and considered this a little bit last week, the wide path towards hell. It's big and many are on it. <laughs> and so we say, well, I want to be on the right side of history. I want to hold to my own individual Christian beliefs, but I want, I, I want to be on the right side of history. I don't want people saying I'm, I'm small-minded. I'm, I'm this or that. And they, they oh, I don't, you know what? Forget that. I say it with grace and love for those who call us these things. Because we don't need to be on the right side of history. We need to be on the right side of God. That's what we need most of all. We need to be on the right side of God. And, and even if everybody else thinks we're on the wrong side of history, if we're on the right side of God, then we're just fine. We're in the safest place that we could ever be in all of creation. In the hands of the Creator. How do you know, how do you and I know that the Lord is on our side? How can we know that, that the Lord is for us and not against us? How can we know that the Lord is, is truly on our side? Well, we only need to look at the cross. We only need to turn to that great and beautiful chapter of Romans that so many Christians have turned to throughout the centuries in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, even in the face of death. What then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31 through 34. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I even just picture, sorry, a little break here. You're on the wrong side of history, Christian. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Church, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If God takes up our cause, then church, victory is guaranteed, even if we don't see it in this life. God plus none always gets the job done. He who did not spare his own son, who sent him to the cross so that you and I and every other person who trusts in him would be forgiven and reconciled to God. The gospel proves, the cross proves that God is for us. When you forget, when you wonder, is God truly for me? It doesn't feel like it in this situation. Turn your focus to the cross. Turn your gaze, your, your, your thoughts, your prayers, your, your, your reading of scripture. Get to the cross. Because it proves without a shadow of doubt that God is for you, Christian. God saved you, and so he is on your side. And what is to be our response to God being on our side? What, what should we do in response? Well, it should be the same type of response that David has in verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. We are to confess, church, that our help is in the name of the Lord, that, that we are hopeless and helpless on our own. The gospel makes it clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that we're all born sinners and we choose to sin. But God is so powerful, the gospel proclaims, because the same God who made heaven and earth, who we had rejected and rebelled against, now pours out his grace on sinners through the finished work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues to care for us and rescue us from our enemies. And this very God is on our side. Oh, the wonders and the beauty of this simple truth. Just ponder it for a while. Just go into this truth this week. 
God is on your side. Doesn't mean every decision you make is right. Doesn't mean every opinion that you have or every single vote that you've ever made is the right one. It means that ultimately God is for you. And even as you struggle through sanctification, even as you sin and repent of it, God is on your side. He, he's, never, he's never out to get you. He's not out to make, to make your life you know, the, a living hell. He saved you from hell. He's always for you. He's always on your side, even when you don't think he is, or even when your experience says, I'm not sure he's on my side. He's always on your side. Oh, the wonders and the beauty of this simple gospel truth. Our help, your help, my help is in the name of the Lord. This last verse is bursting with comfort and encouragement for you, Christian. Where should your confidence be this morning? And tomorrow and the next day, where should your confidence be when you're walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death? Where should your confidence be when you're facing cancer? Where should your confidence be when your children rebel against the Lord and they walk away from the Lord? Don't change your theology. Put your confidence in the Lord. Don't look for loopholes to just kind of coexist with everybody else's bad theology. No, no, no. Your hope is in the Lord. He's on your side. Even in these things, you might be a little Athanasius in the world that God has put you in. Holding fast to the gospel. Everybody else seems to be abandoning the gospel. And there you are. The 80-year-old the woman holding fast to the gospel and everybody else in her, in her family seems to have abandoned it. Contra mundum, but the Lord is on your side. Hold fast to him. Put your confidence in him. Your help is not in the things of this world, in money, in your house, or even in people, ultimately. Your sure and unfailing help is in the name of the Lord. And so set your mind on this truth and may it make its way down deep into your heart today. Now, I've already given you quite a few examples that show that what matters most is the Lord is on our side. We've, we've looked at some, some biblical characters, some people in, in the scriptures. I've given you some church history people. I've mentioned Athanasius, so some of you know who he is now. Wonderful. Well, I want to close with one more truth, one more example to drive this, one more example to drive this truth even deeper into your heart. If you're a Christian, what is your last enemy? Your, your final opponent? Well, according to scripture, it's, it's not the world, it, it's not sin, and it's not even Satan. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says that our last enemy, our final opponent, is death. Death is a terrible enemy. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is a continual reminder for all of us that things are not as they should be in this world. Death separates us from loved ones. It leaves the living, and, the living with the lasting grief and sorrow that gets passed on to every single generation over and over again since the fall. This has been happening. And yet, church, even death, our last enemy, does not win. It does not have the final word with the people of God. Why? Because God is on our side. This is why in response to death, Paul can boldly, I think almost tauntingly, say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We know, church, that God is on our side, that God will give us the victory because of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Even our last enemy, death itself, will one day be destroyed. By us? No, by the Lord. The difference maker is God. If the Lord is on your side, the victory is guaranteed. This gospel truth provides us with assurance and increases our confidence in the Lord. This is why we can be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because God is on our side. And he makes all the difference. He is the X factor. Because of Jesus' sinless life, his sin-atoning death, and his life-giving resurrection, God is on your side, Christian. And so are you on the Lord's side? Is God for you? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ? Is the Lord really on your side? If he is, if you're a Christian, then you have all the help that you need, for your help is in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. God, may this truth, this, this message of Psalm 124, truly make its way deep into our hearts, deep down into our hearts. May we comprehend it. May we wrestle with it and, and all of its implications in our mind, but may we comprehend it and, and may it change our hearts. You are for us. The maker of heaven and earth is for us. Though we don't deserve it, though it is, it is because of your grace and for your glory, we are on your side and you are on our side because of the cross you have made us your friends, your children. You have adopted us. And for those Christians in this, in this sanctuary this morning who are really struggling to have confidence in you, to, to trust you, to, to, to remember your goodness, may this truth make its way even deeper into their hearts. And may you use the glories of the gospel and this promise of the gospel that you are for your people to show those who are outside of Christ their need for Christ. And they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and worship him with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.